It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. A parent's worst nightmare. That's a phrase that can be used to describe any number of circumstances. Included in that list is the helpless feeling of knowing the police are questioning your child and you can't be there to help them or guide them through the process. Because of what I do for a living, my children have been taught from a very young age that you never talk to the police without a lawyer present. No exceptions, full stop, never. Unfortunately, very few parents would even think to teach this valuable lesson to their children. I mean, after all, the police are the good guys. And what are the chances that the situation will ever even come up? But what if it does? Would your son or daughter be prepared? Would they be suspicious of a seemingly kind police officer who might offer them a candy bar, feed them a meal, assure them that they're doing the right thing, and that they can go home just as soon as they sign a statement. These are all tactics that are used by detectives every day in order to keep a juvenile witness or suspect talking. Our children are taught to respect adults, especially those in a position of authority. The police officers know that, and they use it to their advantage. This is Season 10, Episode 2, A Slippery Slope. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's something you need to know about the investigation into the murder of Catalina Palomino. Something really important. Everyone, and I mean everyone, is lying. There were four key witnesses to the murder. Four people who could hold the key to cracking the case. Eva Mondragon claims to have heard Miss Palomino screaming. She's the one who ran to the manager's office to get help. That much we know. And then you have the two boys who were in the apartment that morning, who supposedly stood on the steps with Eva as the killer called out in a disguised voice saying that everything was okay. Those two boys were Youngster, whose real name is Pharrell Smith, and his younger half-brother Kevin Driver, known as KD. 
And lastly, we have 8th grader Jennifer Jeffley. Jennifer, at first, would seem to be the least useful witness. We know that just before the murder occurred, that Jennifer received a page from family friend Craig Peters. She then went over to another friend, Janet Dorsey's apartment, to call him. That page and call have been confirmed by both Craig and Janet. Knowing what I know, it seems as though by the time Jennifer returned to the crime scene, the killer or killers were already gone. But, like I said, everyone is lying, including Jennifer. Everyone's stories are constantly changing, and honestly, none of them make sense. As we move through our investigation, we'll dig deep into all of these statements and try to make sense of them. But for today, we're going to focus on Jennifer. The number one question that I've received from listeners after last week's episode was how did Jennifer Jeffley become a suspect to begin with? And the answer is pretty simple. Eva. According to Jennifer, she said that when she arrived back at the apartment, Eva told her to tell police that she was there with her when she heard the screaming. Jennifer claims that Eva told her that they would be in danger if she didn't. On the scene that day, Jennifer does exactly that, even though we know that for at least some of that time, she was several buildings away at Janet Dorsey's apartment. So Jennifer, in an oral statement to Detective Roy Swainson, she says that she was with Eva when the screams were heard, and that she had been on the stairway with Eva when the man's voice called out from inside. Katie and Youngster were no help at all because they left the scene as soon as the police got there. And then there's Eva. She gives a statement saying that Jennifer was not with her when she heard the screaming. So of course, now the police have a problem. One of them is obviously lying. But which one? And here's where things get really tricky. Now, we're going to get into Eva and all of her statements and testimony soon enough. But for now, suffice it to say that she can't give a consistent version of the story to save her life. She eventually tells police that not only was Jennifer not with her during the murder, but that Jennifer asked her to lie and say that she was. Jennifer is then transported down to the police station to give a written statement. As a witness, not as a suspect, according to Houston PD. She couldn't have been a suspect because that would mean that they'd be required to notify her mother. This is Jackie Jeffley explaining the events of Tuesday, October 29th, from her perspective. Kimberly and Jennifer both were not going to school. And I found that out. You know, I found, I found out that they weren't going. And I told them, you cannot, you, gotta, you have to go to school. It was a big issue to me. School, you have to go to school. It's different here. I mean, they're talking about finding me and, and putting me in jail. And and then me and Kim got into it about something. And um, I think then my mom came to visit us. And my mom said, um, that was it. That was, that was, we never really had any issues. I was the type of mother to say, you're going to do this. And this is the way it has to be done. And this is how you have to do it. And normally, I had to tell them a few times, and then they seemed, Jennifer got it. She, okay, mama, but I think, um, I don't know. It was, they had to go to school. I thought it was a school thing. 
although and, and boys, you couldn't do boys either, but I wasn't worried about the boys because the school was on the biggest issue to me. You mm-hmm. have to go to school. You have to go to school. You have to go to school. And that's that. So I think that um, whatever me and Kim might have gotten into, I'm not sure, but um, they decided to run away. And both of them ran away. Kim and Jennifer ran away. Did you know where she was Where she was staying, that she was just down at a different unit? I had no idea. Didn't know where she was at. I thought actually she might have been with Craig Peters. I had no idea. And Craig was a family friend. Mm-hmm. Or a new family friend when you moved yeah. to town. He, yeah, he he became a, yeah. And I didn't have a phone. <clears throat> so I would have to go to the payphone to, uh, but I, I, I went to the payphone to see if he knew where she was. And he said he didn't. And I told him, if you hear from her, tell her to come home. Tell her and, and Kim both to come home. He said he would. But um, I had no idea where they were. I thought they might be with him. I had no idea. And I didn't know anybody in the apartment complex at the time. Can you walk me through the day the murder happens? Police talk to Jennifer. At some point, I imagine you get notified. How did that happen? Did Jennifer come talk to you? Did the police come talk to you? No. No. On the day of the murder? No, I was of uh, Jennifer. I view Jennifer. Kim came home. And Kim went to school the day of the murder. Kim went to school that morning. Jennifer didn't come home. And my sister went and asked. Well, my sister went to wash her clothes. And she came back. She said, uh, there's something going on in the front of the building. And I'm like, really? She said, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm I'm not nosy. And then uh, she was doing her laundry. She went back out and she came back and she said, I saw Jennifer. I said, where? She said she was standing up there with some police. So what I did, I got in my car and I went to a police station. And I told them, I said, my daughter is a runaway. And I want you all to pick her up and bring her in. And he said, do you know where she's at? And I'm like, she's talking to, something happened in my apartment complex, and she's talking to the police. He said, do you know where she's at? I said, yeah, she's standing out there talking to the police. He said, well, then she's not a runaway anymore. And I'm like, well, what do you mean she is a runaway? He said, no, if you know where she's at, she's not a runaway. So I was like, well, what does this mean? He said, just go get your kid. But as I was there talking to him, and I'm like, this is wrong. And she walked past me with an officer. And when she walked past me, I looked at her because I'm thinking, well, maybe they did bring her in because I told him she's a runaway. So I go and I said, uh, that's my daughter. And he said, the girl that just went in there with the officer? I said, yes. He said, oh, okay. I said, well, what did, they, what did he bring her in here for if he says she's not a runaway? He said, I'll find out for you. And I waited and I waited. It took a long time. It took a long time, so I went back up, and I said, you were supposed to find out what happened, what's going on with my daughter. And he said, oh, they're questioning her. And that's when they told me. That's when that officer at the police station told me that she was a witness, and they were taking a witness statement from her. And I'm like, okay. I said, well, can I go up there with her? And he said, "Uh, let me call and find out. 
And he said, no, they're going to send her down. They're going to bring her down. So I said, okay. So I waited. I waited. And I went back to the window. I said, they haven't brought her down yet. Um, is there something wrong? Can I go up there with her? And he said, no. He said, he's, let me check. He's always letting me check. Let me check. So he says, no. He said, he's going to come down right now with her. And I'm like, okay. And I waited. And then I was like, I thought you said he's coming down with her. And he said, um, well, look, there she is right there. And he buzzed her through the door. And she was by herself. And no one talked to me. So I asked her, I said, are you all right? What's going on? And he said, oh, she said, oh, I was uh, given a witness statement. Okay. So we get out in the car and I asked her about that. I said, a witness statement? And she said, yeah. I said, so you know what happened? She said, no. I said, you can't give a witness statement if you don't know what happened. She said, I don't know what happened. I just said what Eva told me to say. I said, Eva told you to say something? And it kind of went like that. Uh And she's like, well, yeah. I said, you don't know anything. She said, I really don't, Mama, for real. I said, okay. I said, well, you can't do that. I said, you can't say things to be a witness for somebody. If somebody tells you to say something, that's wrong. And then I kind of told her, I think, you know, if somebody had did that to your brother and they didn't know, they just told the police that. I said, that's wrong. She said, I know, but that's what Eva wanted me to tell them. So she wanted me to be a witness. I said, well, don't, you know, you can't do that. That's wrong. You don't do that. And she said, okay. So we went home. Jennifer was questioned and gave her first written statement to Detective Boyd Smith that day. At trial, Smith testified that Jennifer was not a suspect at that point. In fact, he says that he didn't even know what was going on at the crime scene. He was simply tasked with getting a written statement from Jennifer by one of the lead detectives on the case, Detective Swainson. Smith checks off all the boxes during his testimony. He says that Jennifer was not a suspect at that time, she was not handcuffed, and she was free to leave at any time. Although, when prodded by the defense, he admits that he never actually told Jennifer that she was free to leave. It was simply assumed that she knew that. The murder occurred around 9 a.m. Jennifer was questioned at the scene and then was transported to the police station at around 2.30 p.m. Detective Smith first interviewed her, and then he had her dictate a statement to him as he typed it. We'll get into the details of that statement next week. But Jennifer signed it, and by sheer happenstance, her mother happened to be at the station when she finished. She left, believing that her ordeal was over. Detective Smith gave her no indication that she was a suspect, and he even testified later that he had no reason not to believe her at that time. Her statement was in no way incriminating, and on that Tuesday evening, it appeared as though Jennifer had simply done her part to help fill in some gaps for investigators with her witness statement. But for Detectives Roy Swainson and Wayman Allen, the matter was far from settled. Swainson and Allen were now on the hunt for the two other witnesses, Kevin Driver and Pharrell Smith. The detectives knew that Eva and Jennifer's statements were in direct conflict with each other, but there was really no way to tell who was telling the truth and who was lying, or if they were both lying. According to Jennifer, again, She had modified her story, placing herself at the scene earlier than when she actually returned from making her phone call because Eva asked her to and claimed they were in danger. On the other side of that coin, Eva was throwing all sorts of shade Jennifer's way. 
In one statement, she says that she thought she saw Jennifer returning from Janet Dorsey's apartment while on the way to report the incident to the managers, which would alibi Jennifer. But then in another statement, she says that Jennifer asked her to lie. And at one point, she even claimed that Jennifer was a crack addict, which, as far as I can tell, is not even close to true. But the hunt was on for Youngster and KD to try to clear things up. Meanwhile, Jennifer returned home with her mother. Jackie went to bed, and Jennifer stayed up talking to her grandmother, who was visiting from out of town. It was a long day, but it was finally over. Or so they thought. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The next morning, detectives Swainson and Allen were back at the Green Arbor apartments looking for Youngster and his brother. Jackie had left for work, and Jennifer was at home with her grandmother, Harriet Jeffley. It wasn't long before the officers came looking for Jennifer, hoping that she could point him in the right direction. At one point, the brothers were actually at the complex. Jennifer walked the officers over towards them, but Katie and Youngster managed to slip away. It seemed, at least through these reports, as though they were actively avoiding the police. Eventually, detectives find the boys at their home, and they question them. And, no shocker here, their stories not only conflict with both Jennifer and Eva's, but they also conflict with each other. According to the record, at first, Katie says that Jennifer was not present when they heard the woman screaming, and Youngster says that she was. But when confronted about the discrepancy, Youngster changes his story to match Katie's. So now we have four witnesses, all telling multiple versions of events and all constantly changing their stories. None of the stories line up, and none of them make a lick of sense. Let me just give you one example. So Eva, KD, and Youngster all relay some version of events, whereas all three of them are outside on the stairs when they heard Catalina inside screaming, meaning the murder was still in progress at that time. Then Eva leaves to go to the office and leaves the two boys standing there, outside, right next to the patio, until she returned with the maintenance man who went in to investigate which, at that point, the killer or killers would be gone. And yet somehow, in all their stories, neither of them saw the killer or killers leave the scene. And that's just one example of all these stories not making sense. But, after talking to the two brothers, Swainson and Allen seemed to have a theory about what happened. At this point, it was 3-1 to one against Jennifer. She says in her first statement that she was with the others when Catalina was screaming, and all three of the other witnesses now say that she was not. 
logic might lead you to believe that she wasn't there because she was off making a phone call. But it seems the officers had a different hypothesis. They believed that she wasn't with the other three because she was inside killing Catalina. Swainson then loads Kevin Driver up into his car to take him down to the station to give a written statement. On the way, he stops by Unit 135 at Green Arbor and finds Jennifer Jeffley sitting outside of her apartment with her Aunt Joanna, Jackie's sister. Her grandmother was inside at the time. She has since passed away, but this is how she described what happened next at trial. She says that she was inside the apartment when she heard a knock at the door. She opened the door to find Detective Roy Swainson. He was friendly and just wanted to let her know that he was going to talk to Jennifer. Harriet, who had been up late into the night talking with Jennifer about the events of the day before, had no concerns and told him to go ahead. At this point, it was about 2.30 in the afternoon and Jackie was still at work. Harriet says that she didn't pay much attention to what was going on outside until her daughter Joanna came in and told her that the officer was taking Jennifer away. She quickly went outside to see what was going on. I'll quote her retelling of what happened next directly from the trial transcript. Quote, Detective Swainson was putting her in the back seat of his car. I went up to him and asked him, could I go with them? He told me no. I asked, was it okay then if I followed him in my car? He replied, yes. I went into the apartment and got my keys, and when I came back, the car was gone. Harriet goes on to explain that she didn't know Houston very well and had no idea where to go which is why she wanted to follow Swainson to the station. He waited for her to go inside to get her keys, and then took her granddaughter away, leaving her helpless. Remember, this is 1996, and the Jeffleys barely had enough money to get by. They had no cell phones, and personal GPS devices were not something most people had in their vehicles. She was stuck there, keys in her hand, with no idea where Jennifer had been taken. As we move along here, I'm going to do my best to present you two different perspectives as to what went on that day. You're going to hear the events of that Wednesday as described by Detective Wayman Allen, whose trial testimony will be voiced by our music man and sound engineer, Shane Yoder, and also you'll hear Jennifer's mother's perspective. When we compare the two versions of the day, we see how they intersect and how Detective Allen was playing a dangerous game. Swainson arrived at the police station with Jennifer and Kevin Driver around 2.45 p.m. He took KD into an interview room and turned Jennifer over to Detective Allen to interview her. In a pretrial hearing, Allen explained why he wanted to question Jennifer for a second time. I had Miss Jeffley take a seat in an interview room. It was located off the hallway of the main homicide division on the second floor. I told Miss Jeffley I wanted to talk to her concerning some discrepancies in her statement that she made the day before, along with some other witnesses that had been brought down. I told her that her statement was in direct contradiction to what Eva Mondragon has stated, and also what Daniel Truesdale stated the maintenance man, and Ms. Mondragon had indicated in her written statement that Ms. Jeffley wanted her to lie for her, 
and say she was present at the time when they had gone to the door and heard screaming. Jennifer is now being interrogated at 15 years old with less than an 8th grade education without a parent or an attorney. Alan gets away with this by checking off the same boxes that Detective Smith had the day before. He says that she was not a suspect and was not in custody. Even though she had been transported to the station in the back of a police car, she was not handcuffed and she was free to leave whenever she wanted to. Although just like Boyd Smith, Alan never actually informed Jennifer that she had the right to leave. Now, if Jennifer had been a savvy adult who knew anything about the law, I think this interview would have gone down much differently. But with Jennifer, it was easy. As long as he treated her nicely and made her feel comfortable, it would never occur to her to ask to leave. Detective Allen even testified that at one point he bought Jennifer a Sprite and he split a bag of Reese's Pieces with her. He points that out on the stand in order to demonstrate how he did not mistreat Jennifer during the interview. But I see it very differently. He's manipulating her. Even the act of sharing the candy seems calculated to me. Somehow creating a bond between a witness and her captor. So much so that she doesn't even realize that she's being held captive. All of which is allowed because, again, she's just a witness, not a suspect. Even though Alan testifies that the purpose of the interview was because he knew that she was lying. But yet still, she's not a suspect. I should point out that none of this, not one word of these hours and hours of interrogation were recorded. As the day goes on, Alan says that he confronts Jennifer with the inconsistencies in her story, and she then admits that she was lying. She offers a second version that he says reconciles her statement with Eva and the maintenance man's statement. So what's happening here is Alan is giving Jennifer information that he has from these other two witnesses so that she can construct a new story that fits them. And it seems like she does her best to comply but the problem is that she's trying to fit her statement to the stories of both the maintenance man, Daniel Truesdale, who in all likelihood is telling the truth as he knows it, and Eva Mondragon, who very well may not be telling the truth. Unfortunately, we'll never know exactly what Jennifer said in that second statement, because as I said, it wasn't recorded and it wasn't even written down, at least not in the records that have been produced to me by HPD. But regardless of exactly what Jennifer said in that second statement, Detective Allen wasn't buying it. The second statement just didn't make any sense at the time. I told her I could determine she wasn't being honest and that it just didn't make any sense. That the sequence didn't make any sense as she described it. She told me again she would tell the truth. She asked at one point if she could go wash her face, go to the restroom. I allowed her to do this. She came back and then started another version. According to Alan, after the bathroom break, Jennifer gives him a third version of events. In this version, he says that Jennifer now shifts all blame onto Eva. She says that Eva was upset with Catalina because she had complained to the management about all the traffic in and out of her apartment. Jennifer says that Eva and a man named Frank had planned to, quote, rough up the downstairs neighbor 
And then when she returned from making her phone call, she saw Eva and Frank jumping over Catalina's patio fence. But Detective Allen testifies that, quote, this was obviously glaringly wrong. And his reason? Because that story contradicted the statements of Katie and Youngster. You know, the two guys with different stories who were avoiding the police for an entire day. Allen says that he tells Jennifer that he knows she's lying, and she admits that she had made that story up. She says she made it up to get back at Eva for saying that she told her to lie for her. Now at this point, it's around 5 p.m. It had been over two hours since Jennifer began the interview with Alan. Inside the station, he has now managed to get her to give him three different versions of her story. Each time, he tells her that he knows she's lying, and each time, she then presents another version, adding in details that he's providing to her. Meanwhile, on the outside, back at the Green Arbor Apartments, this is what Jackie Jeffley was going through. And I had to go to work in the morning. So I went, we went home and I talked to my mom. And then I told my mom I was going to bed. Because I had to get up at like 2.30 in the morning to go to work because mm-hmm. I worked for a shift. And that was it. So, so she went home with you that night. Mm-hmm. You went to bed and you went to work the next day? Yes. And so when you went to work, was she still at home? Mm-hmm. And then what transpired that day? Well, um, when I came home from work, I think I got in about, I, mean, I always made it home after three o'clock. And I think I, I was, I came in, I was so, so tired. And I went in and I said, uh, where's Jennifer? And she said, I said, did she go to school? My mom said, no, she didn't go to school today. The officers came by and took her. I said, they, they what? And she said, the officers came. They wanted to talk to her again. So they took her to the police station. And I said, mom, you let the officers take her to the police station? She said, no, I didn't let them take her. They told me that they wanted to talk to her, and I asked them, could I go with them? And the officer told me, I don't have enough room in my car for me to take you. She said, so I went, I asked him, I said, well, can I follow you? And he said, yeah, you can follow me. She said, and I came in the house. He was standing right there on the sidewalk. She said, I came in the house and got my purse. And my keys, and when I went back out, he was gone. So she said, I got in my car and I drove to the street to see if I saw him because I thought maybe he's going to wait for me right there. She said, and he was gone. I don't know where he went. I don't know which way he went. But the evening before he did come to the house, let me back up some. Before I went to bed, he came in and he looked around in my, both of them looked around in my apartment and asked me, did I know the two guys that, one youngster, I don't know the other one, he didn't say it. I don't know. It was KD he was talking about, but I don't know. I don't think he said his name at the time. No, I don't know them. I don't know anybody here. I don't, you know, he said, uh, we're looking for two guys that was over at the apartment upstairs. And he said something and we're trying to find them. You don't know where they live? I'm like, no, I never met them before. I don't know them. So he gave me his card and he asked me to call him. If I found out anything about their whereabouts or if I saw them, I didn't even know what they looked like. You know, if you see them or you find out their whereabouts, give me a call and let me know. I told him, okay, I'll do that. I don't have a phone, but okay, I'll do that. You know, I kind of felt like you're joking, you're kidding me, right? But okay, I'll do that. And um, so when I came home that day, I went to work. My mom said they went off and left her. I came home and I said, okay, well, I've got to 
I'm tired, but I'm going to walk up here to the to the store, maybe to wake me up and um, call Jennifer, not Jennifer, call the uh, police, call the police officer. So I went to the um, to the store and I got changed and I called him. He answered the phone right away. And I told him who I was. And he told me, he said, um, yeah, I had brought Jennifer in. She's just a witness. She's kind of helping me find out to help me find out who could have done this to Miss Palomino. And I said, okay. I said, well, I, um, I, I, I think I asked him to to tell me where he was or when. I, I know I didn't ask him when he's going to bring her home, but I asked him to tell me where were they. And he said, oh no, you don't have to. You don't have to come. Um, I'm at my office with her. She's okay. We'll get, I'm getting ready to bring her home. We'll be there in 30 minutes. 30 minutes. So I said, okay. Now I'm thinking because with my son, we had to, um, people came forth and told what they knew about the person who shot him. So I'm thinking that, you know, well, if she can help somebody who killed somebody, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. So, okay. But I'm like, she said she didn't know anything. So I went home and I talked to my mom. She and I talked. And we waited, we talked, we waited, we talked. And then time went fast. And the next thing I know, like, oh, they haven't brought her home yet. Let me go back up here and call. Detective Allen never mentions any calls from Jackie in his retelling of events. All we hear about are Jennifer's changing stories. In his testimony, he goes on to explain that after the Eva did it story, Jennifer finally gave him her fourth and final statement. In this version, Jennifer says that she knows who killed Miss Palomino because she was there inside of the apartment when it happened. She doesn't say that she killed Catalina, but that she was there helping with a robbery when it happened. And that was all that Waymond Allen needed. At this point, it's now around 6 p.m. All it took was just over three hours of prodding Sprite and a half a bag of Reese's Pieces to get Jennifer to implicate herself in the crime. But unfortunately for Detective Allen, he had nothing that he could use in court at this point. The statement wasn't recorded or transcribed. And he was in even more of a pickle because at that point he could no longer claim that Jennifer wasn't the suspect or that she wasn't in custody. She had just told him that she was involved. He needed a written statement but Texas law requires a juvenile suspect to be given Miranda warnings by a magistrate before that can happen. Officers can't just read them their rights like they can with an adult. At that point, I told her that she was not free to go. At that point, I thought she certainly, obviously, was a suspect. She needed to be taken down and have her warnings given to her before a magistrate, before anything could be reduced to a written statement. So I told officers Swainson and Smith that we were going to the magistrate's office for the warnings. We drove down to the probable cause court uh, downtown, and I requested she be given the warnings. And they were given to Miss Jeffley by Judge Carrier. After Jennifer received her magistrate warnings, Alan took her back to the police station to give her written statement. The events of the next half hour are critically important. As it turns out, 
Maybe not so much in a court of law, but most certainly in order for us to better understand how we got to where we stand today as we begin our investigation into this case. First, I want you to hear Jackie Jeffley's side of the story. Then, as these two stories collide, you need to know that Jackie herself has never heard or seen any of this pretrial testimony before. When I interviewed her a month ago, she had no idea where her phone calls to Detective Allen fit into this timeline. She's going to be hearing this unfold right along with you, right now. Here's Jackie. Time went fast, and the next thing I know, like, oh, they haven't brought her home yet. Let me go back up here and call. And I kept going back up there. I give them after so so late, you know, traffic is really bad. So I thought, well, maybe the holdup is the traffic. He hasn't brought her home because of the traffic. And um, didn't bring her home, so I go back and I call. And he said, oh, yeah, we, we, we're coming. We're coming. She's just added something else. We're coming. We have to start all over. She's coming, though. We're getting ready to bring her home. And he would never tell me where. And on his card, his card, I went to the police station where I went, but his card was not the same place that I had went to. Mm -hmm. So I was under the impression that his office was a different place. So I was like, well, where, where's your office at? Where did you locate it? He would never tell me where he was. He just said, well, we're here at the office. She's fine. She's in good hands. I'll have her home to you shortly. And I'm like, well, she's probably hungry and tired because she probably was up all night talking with my mother. Can I talk to her? He said, well, she, I don't know what he said, but I didn't get to talk to her then. But he said, we're going to come. We're going we're to get in the car now and come. And um, okay. And then went back home, waited. I might have dozed off to sleep because I was tired. And I wake up, mom says, and I, or I, yeah, I went, I did. I said, mom, did, did you come? She said, no, they haven't brought it yet. So I went back. I said, y'all have to tell me, tell me where she's at. Tell me where you're at. So I can, if you're questioning her, if this is whatever you're doing, I can be there with her. And they said, no, she's fine. She's, she's doing good. We're laughing. We're talking. She's, we shared a candy bar together, bought her a Sprite. Well, Jennifer was, was, uh, if you know her, if you know her, she's easy to talk to. She's, you know, cause she likes people. So I'm like, Jennifer. I'm thinking she's in there laughing and, you know, I'm not thinking anything bad. I'm not thinking anything negative. Now it's getting later and later and later and later. And I'm like, okay, uh, you said you're coming in 30 minutes. You're not here yet. Where are you? He said, we're fine. You want to talk to Jennifer? Yeah, let me talk to her. Now this is around eight o'clock. Jennifer, um, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, mom. What are you doing? I just, I, I think she said she just finished eating a hamburger. I said, where are you? And before she could tell me, the officer took the phone. And he said, um, okay, Miss Jeffrey, we're getting ready to wrap it up and bring her home. And I'm like, okay, but tell me where you're at. Just let me know where you are. And he said, we're coming. That's fine. You don't have to worry about it. We're coming. And he never would tell me. Over and over again, Jackie Jeffrey walked to the payphone and called Detective Allen. At one point, she says she even drove down to one of the HPD stations. She was told repeatedly, for hours on end, 
that Alan would have her daughter home soon. And he refused again and again to tell her where the interview was being conducted so that she could be there with Jennifer. Which, according to Texas law, is not completely out of bounds. As long as the juvenile is only being interviewed as a witness and is not in custody. Based on my understanding of the law, that all changes the minute the child is considered a suspect. As I mentioned earlier, a juvenile suspect must be given magistrate warnings before an officer can take a written statement from them. But that's not the only step. There's one more thing. In Texas, a police officer has a duty to make a reasonable effort to inform a parent once a child is taken into custody before they can be questioned after their magistrate warnings or a written statement can be taken. Now, you might think it would be unreasonable to expect Detective Allen to contact Jennifer's mom because she didn't have a phone. But I want you to listen to this excerpt from his pretrial testimony. And remember, the one time that Jackie was actually allowed to talk to Jennifer during this now nearly five-hour ordeal, Jennifer was sitting at Allen's desk with him and had just eaten a hamburger. And again, remember... Jackie has never heard or seen this testimony before right now. Detective Allen here is describing what happened after Jennifer received her magistrate warning. At this point, again, he has testified that she is now in custody and she is no longer free to go. She is a suspect. We, we've returned to the Southeast Station. However, on the way it was a little after seven o'clock and I believe we haven't eaten anything. So I stopped at Burger King and purchased something to eat. I purchased hamburgers for both of us and soft drinks. She had a hamburger and Sprite. Um, and then we returned to the station. I escorted her up to homicide division. It was now 7.30ish, uh, 7.40. I had her take a seat beside my desk in the office and set her food there. I then displayed the statement form on the computer and had her seated on my left uh, and discussed the warnings that Judge Carrier had given. Um, she said she understood those rights. Let me just make this crystal clear. When we piece together the timeline using both Jackie and Detective Allen's version of events, this is how things shook out that day. Jennifer is interviewed as a witness from 2.45 p.m. until around 5 p.m. She is not a suspect at that point, and she is not in custody. During that time, Jackie calls Alan multiple times and is consistently assured that he'll have Jennifer home soon, and he refuses to disclose his location. It's at around 5 p.m. when Jennifer begins telling her now fourth version of events. In this statement, she implicates herself in Miss Palomino's murder. At 6 p.m., Alan claims that he told Jennifer that she is no longer free to leave and that she is now a suspect and must be given her magistrate warning. He then takes Jennifer to receive her warnings and they're issued to her by Judge Carrier. He returns to the station with Jennifer and stops at Burger King along the way. He says that he buys her a hamburger and a Sprite since neither of them had eaten all day. They arrive back at the station at around 7.45 p.m., and Alan has Jennifer sit at his desk to eat her hamburger as he reviews her warnings and begins reducing her earlier incriminating statement to writing. And this is the exact moment 
to Jackie Jeffley, the woman that he is supposed to be contacting before he takes Jennifer's statement, calls him on the phone. Rather than taking this opportunity to inform Jackie that Jennifer is now in custody and is about to give a written statement, Alan instead tells her that he's wrapping things up and he'll have Jennifer home soon. Now, besides the blatant disregard for his duty to inform a child's parent that her daughter is being questioned as a suspect in a murder case, there's more going on here. At trial, Alan claims that he informed Jennifer that she was no longer free to leave before this phone call occurred. He also says that he never told Jennifer that she would be free to leave after she reduces her previous statement to writing. But listen again to how things unfolded as Jackie remembers them. He said, we're fine. You want to talk to Jennifer? Yeah, let me talk to her. Now, this is around 8 o'clock. Jennifer, um, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, Mom. What are you doing? I just, I, I think she said she just finished eating a hamburger. I said, where are you? And before she could tell me, the officer took the phone. And he said, um, okay, Miss Jeffrey, we're getting ready to wrap it up and bring her home. Alan took the phone from Jennifer, and with her sitting right next to him, he told her mother that he's about to finish up and bring her home. Jennifer has stated on the record that she signed the statement that led to her arrest because she was promised that if she signed it, she could go home. Alan has always denied making that promise. But if Jackie's memory is accurate, Jennifer absolutely heard Detective Allen tell her mother that she was going to go home when she was done. Detective Allen says that he didn't believe any of Jennifer's first three statements. Well, I have to say, I don't believe a word that Detective Allen is saying here. According to his testimony, when Jennifer was finally able to speak to her mother on the phone, she had already been informed that she was now in custody. She was no longer free to leave. She's a suspect in a murder. Do you believe for one minute that knowing that, at 15 years old, Jennifer would tell her mom that she's fine? I find it very hard to believe that young Jennifer would not have sounded scared on the phone or that she wouldn't have told her mother that she was in trouble or at least that Jackie would have suspected that something was wrong. She knows her daughter, and any of you out there that are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We know when something is wrong with our child. I do not believe Waymond Allen. I think that Jennifer was not afraid because she had no idea that she was in trouble. I think that she thought that she was just helping the police find someone else. And I also believe that at 9.50 p.m., when Detective Allen had finally finished typing out her statement, two hours into this final interview and seven hours after her arrival at the station, Jennifer thought that if she signed it, she was going to go home. Obviously, my blood is absolutely boiling at this point. I have a 15-year-old daughter myself. And I cannot even imagine going through a nightmare like this. And so I wanted to know right away what, if anything, can be done about it. As I understand the law, 
Detective Allen was in clear violation when he failed to inform Jackie that her daughter was being questioned on that phone call. So I reached out to someone who understands Texas law better than anyone I know. I called up the deputy director of the Innocence Project of Texas, Allison Clayton, right after the break. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So what rights do parents have in these situations when a minor child is taken in for questioning? What rights do parents have to access? Because for me, and I think a lot of people listening right now, we all just assume that if the police want to talk to our children, that they have to contact me and get my permission first. That's not true. No, that's not accurate. There are two parts that you have to look at. First is whenever the child is not in custody. So like just whenever a cop or a law enforcement officer thinks that, you know, I just want to talk to this juvenile because he's a, he or she may be a witness, you don't get any access. They can, a cop can go up to school and talk to your kid right now and you would never know it and you don't have the right to know it necessarily. But at the point, that's, you know, kind of the first point that we look at it. Second point is after the child becomes an actual suspect to a crime, you're talking about actual, you know, the, the police suspect this person of delinquent conduct, then the parents do have some rights. Um, that you have to get the, the, the law enforcement officer has to, this is like from the statute, and just because I know your listeners are very active and engaged, and if, if you want to check me on it, you can, can read it. It's um, the Texas Family Code Section 52.02, um, subsection B, that once you're ta- talking about taking a child in, into custody, that the law enforcement officer has to promptly give notice that this is what I'm doing to the parent. So you're supposed to reach out to the parent and say, hey, this is what's going on. I am arresting your child. I am doing this with your child. You get that, and you get a statement of reason. I am arresting your child because I suspect he or she has done X, Y, Z. That's what you have to do at that point. So those are, those are your rights. Now then, there's a lot of case law in Texas. You know, it's a very well-developed area of law. Um, and so it doesn't always have to be entirely accurate because, as you know, as we all know, cops are certainly entitled to lie to people, and they do, and uh, and things change as well. So, for example, there was one time we had a case in Texas where cop arrest was filed suspecting a child of, I don't remember the details, of like a robbery or something like that. And so a cop calls the, calls the parent and says, hi, I'm arresting your son because I suspect he has been involved in a robbery. Then as the, you know, interrogation goes on and on, he now becomes a suspect and another crime, say, you know, a murder. Uh, 
so at that point, you know, the cop doesn't have to call up and say, oh, by the way, now I'm suspecting some of this. No, as long as you get that initial notification of I'm arresting your child and this is the reason why at this moment I'm arresting your child, then Texas law has been satisfied. But let's take it even one step further. So what happens if the law enforcement officer just doesn't want to have to do that? What if he, he or maybe he forgets? Um, you know, what happens if the parent does not get notified? So this, this law enforcement officer has taken your child now into custody. This child is going to get arrested. Um, and they don't ever tell the parent. They don't let the parent know. What are the, in as much as the criminal case is concerned, what happens? Well, the answer is nothing. Nothing happens. There's another provision under the family code. It's, it's section 61.106. And it says, Essentially, you know, if an officer does not do this, if the officer does not comply with our parental right to access statute, then you can't use that as a basis for excluding the evidence against the child at trial. You can't use it as the basis for an appeal, and you can't bring it up in post-conviction writ. So really what it does is, is it says, okay, these are the parents' rights. There are not many. And by the way, if those rights are not respected, nothing's going to happen. So it's a statute that's already a pretty weak statute and has no teeth, essentially. So in, in this case specifically, you know, we have Jennifer, the police officer, the detective that's interviewing her, says she's not a suspect. She's just a witness throughout the first five hours of the day when he's interviewing her. And then she tells him a version, her fourth version of the story. He says on the record, uh, he's testified to this. That at that point, she became a suspect and he informed her she is no longer free to leave. And then he satisfies the law by then taking her to the magistrate, having the magistrate read her her warnings, the basically Miranda warnings, and then takes her back to the police station before they have a six hour window in order to take a written statement. But before they can take that written statement they have to make a reasonable effort to contact the parents. Is it, am I understanding what, what should be done at that point? Yes. At that point, they have to promptly give notice to the guardian that this is what's happening, and they have to say, and this is why. So in this case, we have, by, by piecing together the statements from Jennifer's mom, Jackie, and the statements from the police officer, who, which all kind of, kind of, those two merge together with the buying a hamburger, and there, she was sitting at his desk eating a hamburger while giving the written statement, or, or leading up to giving the written statement after the magistrate warning. Mom calls, and the officer has her on the phone, and then tells her she's just given a statement, and I'll have her home right after this. So at that point, would they be in violation of that statute? for parental rights? I don't know because I don't know what the reason is. So, so for example, if the officer says, I have taken your daughter, Jennifer, into custody under suspicion of involvement in a murder, right? That checks, that checks the boxes. I've taken her into custody. This is the reason why. If he follows that with, I'm going to have her confess to this and I'll get her right home, that's clearly a lie. But the other two, but that's not, like, the statute doesn't require police officers to tell the truth. Right. So, so you see what I'm saying? Like, if, if, if he still checked those other two boxes, then no, what he did was legal. 
Um, and then he just followed that up with a massive lie. That's still legal. The lie here was that he has testified that she was a suspect. She was in custody. She had been given her warnings, which my understanding is that puts him in now that window where he has to promptly notify the parents that that has occurred. And then he gets her on the phone and does not notify her that that's what's occurred. Then he's in violation of the statute. And so based on what you're telling me, he was in violation of the statute because he did not notify her. In fact, he lied to her and told her that she wasn't in custody and that she was getting ready to come home. But regardless of any of that, it doesn't matter because of that other statute that says even though he's violated the statute, there's nothing that can be done about it. That's correct, yes. What you're looking at is the intersection of the law with morality. And the law says this is what you can do. Like, you can lie because nothing's going to happen to you if you do. You can do this, but our morals say this is what you should do. If you've arrested a child, you should tell her parents, and you should tell them why. Like that's what morality does. And people think that our laws are a reflection of morality, of what should be, and that's not true. So that's why it's such a slippery slope, because people give deference to our laws thinking that this is, that they are enforcing the should, but police officers and those in the criminal justice system understand it's not about what you should do, it's about what you can do. And that's why it's such a slippery slope for anyone who gets tangled up in the criminal justice system, but especially for juveniles who are already so naive. As frustrating as it is, Detective Allen will have no consequences for anything that he did during the interrogation of Jennifer Jeffley. And that's probably a pretty good reason why Jennifer's appeals have been denied up to this point. In these cases, with children, it literally doesn't matter if detectives break the rules. It's not about what he should do. It's about what he can get away with. And he got away with manipulating a 15-year-old girl into signing a statement that stole her life away. At around 10 p.m., Jennifer signed the written statement that was typed up by Detective Allen. She was then transported back to the courthouse to receive another set of warnings from the magistrate. Then, she was taken to the juvenile detention center. And finally, then, once it was all over and he had everything that he needed, Detective Allen called to notify Jackie Jeffley that her daughter had just been arrested. And I don't know how many times I went up and called. I know I had to go to the corner store to get some change. I had to go to the store to get some change to keep calling. I don't know what time it was, my mom says, 12 midnight, when the officer called somebody in the apartment complex and asked for me. And somebody came to the house, to the apartment to get me. And I was mad now because I'm like, why are you calling me in somebody's house when you're supposed to be bringing my daughter? And, um... My mom said, I'll go talk to him. I don't remember her doing that, though, but she said, I'll go talk to him. And then she came back and she said, you need to go call. You need to go call that officer. And I was mad. I said, no, I don't know those people. I'm not going to their house to use their phone to call. I'll go to the corner. I'll go to the pay phone. She said, no, you go. I'll go with you, but you need to go call that officer. So I went to the neighbor's house. She went with me. 
my mom went with me. And I went to the neighbor's house and called the um the officer for him to tell me that she's not coming home. She's not coming home. If you want to see her, you go to the juvenile detention center. But that's where we're taking her. And I was quiet. I was mad. I was quiet. I was shocked. And so I had to ask, well, where's the juvenile detention center at? And he gave me the address, and somebody gave me a pencil and a piece of paper. And I wrote it down. I asked, how early can I go see her? And I don't remember, but it was, I could go on the morning side. So me and my mom went the following morning. And Jennifer, um, when she came out, they asked her. Um, she asked me, she said, she's all grinning, big old grin on her face. She was so glad to see me. And she said, you coming to take me home? No. She said, why? I said, because the officer charged you with murder, with capital murder. And we just cried. She said, but I didn't do it. And I said, you signed something. You had to say something because they charged you with capital murder. And she said, so I'm not going home? No. You have to go to court. I said, did you have anything to do with this, Jennifer? She said, Mama, I didn't. I swear I didn't. So I said, okay, well, when they go to court, when you go to court, you'll be able to come home. It's 10 days later. They denied her bond or they wouldn't release her. She never came home again. What did the statement say that Jennifer had signed? That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. 
And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.